All right, welcome to uh, RUF. My name is Brian Sorgan Fry. I'm the campus minister here. If I haven't met you, I would love to. Uh, I also know that, um, I don't know, it's a little harder to get in your car, come out in the rain uh, to Christ Prez rather than maybe go to the chapel. So thanks for making the effort. We are hopefully only here for three more weeks, or two more weeks, however long spring break is. Uh, and then we're back in the chapel. So, uh, all right, what we're doing each week is we are uh, going through the book of Leviticus, as crazy as that sounds sometimes, and trying to make sense of it for this reason. One, uh, I keep trying to say that Leviticus, even to Christians, we treat it like the drunk uncle who shows up at the wedding, like embarrassed that he's there, but like we're kind of like, well, I guess it's part of the family, but don't ask questions. Or, if you're a non-Christian, it really is a stumbling block, because it doesn't seem to make any sense. But what we're trying to suggest is that Leviticus is actually about God drawing near, that He wants to be close to you. He actually wants to be intimate. But because He wants to be close to you, all these barriers are coming up. But Leviticus says that God will he'll overcome any obstacle or barrier uh, to be with you, to be near you. And tonight, this is a chapter on the food laws, Leviticus 3. You might have heard the Jewish term kosher or something like that. And here's the temptation. The temptation is to think about food laws being primarily about food. Um, And I think most of us, though, if you'd reflect on any of our relationships with food, you realize food ultimately isn't the point. There's there's usually more going on, right? About ten years ago, um, there's a writer named Anne Lamont uh, who wrote a book uh, called Grace Eventually. It's basically just about her journey. Uh, she is a recovering alcoholic, uh, which means she, let's say this, she understands the struggle of living in a broken world. She understands uh, that substance abuse goes deeper than just the substance. There's something else going on. And so uh, she's also really funny. You're, you're, I think you're going to hear that uh, in some of the ways that she writes. But when she describes in this book one of her food binges that she went on uh, in her kind of recovery from uh, addiction... Here's what she says. All I could think to do was what every addict thinks of doing. Kill the pain. I don't smoke or drink anymore. I'm too worried to gamble, too guilty to shoplift, and I've always hated clothes shopping anyway. So what choices did that leave me? I could go on a strict diet, or conversely, I could stuff myself to the rafters with fat, sugars, and carcinogens. Ding, ding. We have a winner. I got in the car and I headed to Safeway for an apple fritter, a perfect fritter, in the classic tradition. A frisbee-sized patty of deep-fried dough, crisp and crunchy around the edges, doughy in the center, covered with a sugar glaze. I used to eat fritters in mass quantities, back when I binged and purged. Then, in early sobriety, I'd snack on them sometimes because your body craves a replacement for all the sugar you once got in alcohol. By the time the night was over, I was so lost. I couldn't follow the breadcrumbs back to the path of mental health because I'd eaten them all. So I ended up eating junk off and on until bedtime. I can hardly describe how I felt when it was over. Like a manatee alone in an aquarium. Listen to this. It's hard to remember that you're a cherished spiritual being when you're burping up apple fritters and Cheetos. Sometimes, and realize she's being funny here, okay? Sometimes I think that Jesus watches my neurotic struggles and shakes his head and grips his forehead and starts tossing back mojitos. I think that's really funny, actually. Um, And I want you to think about what she just described in a poignant and hilarious way. 
She said, there is actually something deeper going on within me and my relationship with food. I was asking food to do something for me that food was never meant to do. Deaden pain and escape the brokenness of the world. And we know that today is not any different. Right? Um, Eating disorders are not really about the food. It's about something going on inside the person. There's something profound. Think about it. There's something profound about the fact that we take something external to us and swallow it and it becomes internal. And so the relationship with food, it is complicated. It's usually a way to try to control a chaotic world or a way to get an image of acceptance or a way to even find a sense of identity. There's something deeper going on. And the food laws of Leviticus 11, as weird and foreign as they're going to sound, are ultimately pointing to a deeper reality. It's pointing to something about us and about God. Alright? I hope that interests you enough to try to even pay attention to these uh, tedious verses. Let me pray. Father, uh, we thank you for uh, revealing yourself to us by giving us your word. If what your word says is true, uh, we would not know you unless you chose to reveal yourself to us. Uh, And so we thank you for that gift. Help us to understand it. Uh, Give us ears to hear. Help us to uh, fall in love with Jesus tonight. Help those with questions uh, and doubts and struggles to find that you are life. In your son's name I pray. Amen. All right, here is Leviticus 11, starting in verse 1. We're just going to read the uh, first eight verses, then we'll skip down. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Say to the Israelites, of all the animals that live on land, these are the ones you may eat. You may eat any animal that has a divided hoof and that chews the cud. There are some that only chew the cud or only have a divided hoof, but you must not eat them. The camel, though it chews the cud but does not have a divided hoof, it is ceremonially unclean for you. The hyrax, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof, it is unclean for you. The rabbit, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof, it is unclean for you. And the pig, though it has a divided hoof and does not chew the cud, it is unclean for you. You must not eat their meat or touch their carcasses. They are unclean for you. We're going to skip down verse 9 through uh, 23. Keeps uh, talking about different kinds of animals, which we'll talk about. Verse 45. I'm the Lord who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I'm holy. These are the regulations concerning animals, birds, every living thing that moves about in the water, and every creature that moves along the ground. You must distinguish between the unclean and the clean, between the living creature that may be eaten and those that may not be eaten. David calls God's word uh, sweet as honeycomb. Maybe even Leviticus can be that uh, tonight. We'll see. All right, let's ask three questions about... I'm sorry, I feel like this keeps going in and out. Leviticus is distracting enough, so we'll try to see if we can fix that. All right, I don't know. All right, we're just going to ask three questions tonight. Okay, first, what what are the food laws? What is their purpose And what in the world do we do with them today? All right? What are they? What's their purpose? What about today? What are they? All right, most of Leviticus 11 is about the Lord telling people, particularly the priests here, how to distinguish between food and animals that are clean and unclean. And it's strange, and it looks tedious. And before we talk about why those particular animals, all right, 
the first thing that we got to get down, because it's going to keep coming up in Leviticus, is that clean and unclean mean something uh, different than maybe what you think. Those words have to be understood. Because being clean and unclean is not the same thing as being righteous and wicked. Okay? That's what we think, though. And some of the crazy interpretations of Leviticus equate those two. Being clean in Leviticus is not equal to moral purity. All right? And being unclean, therefore, is not equated with being a guilty sinner. All right? We'll talk about this next week. Maybe I shouldn't say this because you might not come back. Next week is about leprosy and bloody discharges, right? So, anyway. <laughs> but those, those, those things, those, that is not an act that is sinful. What, man, what it is telling you... Man, it is coming down. What it is telling you is those things are unclean, which, may, which means it's just a display of the fallenness of this world. Okay? It's a display of things being out of order, not right. So to be clean means things are in place. Things are in order. Things are the way they're supposed to be, so you're fit to approach God and worship. But something being unclean means it's out of place. It's a consequence of the brokenness of this world. So cleanness and uncleanness is about ritual purity. It's about what's appropriate and inappropriate in the presence of God, not what is sinful or righteous. That kind of makes sense. That's really important. And so in Leviticus, God is putting down these rules in everyday life that confronts the Israelites over and over, even in the way that they prepare their food. That's saying when God draws near, here in the tabernacle, in the space of God, us, He comes into us by His Holy Spirit, This is what's appropriate. This is what is fit to be in the presence of God. And there are things that are not appropriate for the presence of God. Okay. If you haven't mentally checked out yet and think this is is completely weird, I think Leviticus 11 is not as foreign or silly as it sounds. Because think about your own culture. Even today, right? Every culture, every house, every space is actually making categories for what is clean, whether it uses that language or not, and unclean, or what is appropriate and what is inappropriate. Right? For some cultures, it's actually unclean. It's inappropriate to wear your shoes in the house. Right? In other cultures, it's unclean to take your shoes off because I don't want to see your nasty feet. Right? But it has nothing to do whether it's sinful or not. It is what is appropriate for that context. Um, in some cultures, uh, it is appropriate and right, things are in order, to show up at a tailgate in a t-shirt and jeans. In other foreign cultures, right, it's only orderly to show up in high heels and a dress, right? And you realize, I either fit here or I don't. I'm conforming to what this place is supposed to be. And it has to do with food as well, right? Like, there are some parts of the world, realize this, that eating things like dogs is actually good. And we think eating Fido is awful, right? But you realize it's, a, it's something that has been deemed appropriate for this presence. Every culture, every family to some degree has rules telling you what is in order and what is out of order. Or, use Leviticus language, what is clean or what is unclean. 
And so, I guess I would, I, I would walk through those things to ask you to consider that maybe it's not that strange for the Lord to say, here's how things are going to be ordered if my presence is going to be here. Here's what's appropriate and what, here's what's inappropriate for the presence of the holy and good and loving God. And now comes the question of why. Why these things, right? I mean, I get a mole rat. That sounds disgusting. But why crawfish? Like a crawfish bowl is awesome. Why would that be considered unclean? And so here's, and you got to hang with me, right? I realize this is, if this is your first time at RUF, I kind of feel like I need to apologize. Uh, but we're going to keep going, all right? Look, the list of the animals, they are categorized by category, okay? By their spheres of existence. Verse 3 through 8 are animals on land. Verse 9 through 12 are animals in the water. Verse 13 through 23 are, are animals that primarily exist in the air, okay? So that's how it categorizes them. And then in each category... Each sphere has certain things that say this is appropriate for that animal and this is inappropriate. And there's actually a chart on the back. I even have a visual aid for you uh, that will summarize the particulars. So we don't have to walk through it on. But on the land, what's considered clean? Cloven hoof, chew their cud. Water, you have to have fins and scales. Air, uh, you can't, you, it can't be a bird of prey. It can't be swarming things except for locusts and grasshoppers, Okay. Why those things? That's the question. That seems so weird. And there's a ton of ink spilled over this, okay? Here's my best shot at it. Maybe I'm wrong, but here's what I think. The principle that created the dividing line between what was appropriate for the presence of God and what was not is life versus death. Okay? It is life contrasted with death. Many of the animals listed that God says, not clean, not fit for my presence, are animals that are associated with death in some fashion. Okay? That's why there's only animals that chew cud. Because everything else is either a carnivore, therefore feasting on death, is a predator or scavenger. So, so he's saying things that consume death, not appropriate. Or they're animals that spend a lot of time in caves, which in ancient Near Eastern culture, you know what caves were? They were tombs. They were the place of the dead. So that takes out things like lizards and geckos and mole rats and things like that. And then you have animals like pigs, which in the surrounding cultures of Israel, okay, the pagan cultures, things like pigs were associated with the worship of the underworld, the place of the dead. So the first dividing line that God sets down, it says anything that casts the shadow of death, anything that makes you think about death, not appropriate for the presence of God, not fit for, who, for the one who is, you ready? Abundant life. The giver of life. And secondly, and I hope you're still hanging with me, the other category appears to be order versus chaos. Okay, order versus disorder, or normal versus abnormal. Okay, Mary D- Douglas, not that you're ever going to read any of this, she's the scholar who everybody points to because she did all this study and she realized that much of what's called unclean are things that are considered crossing over the ordered boundaries for that species. Okay? 
Apparently, if you're a land-dwelling animal, hoofs that were clothed, order, right? If it's not that way, it's out of order. Fish, scales, fins, something in the water that doesn't have scales or fins, out of order. Doesn't seem to fit. Uh, Insects that swarm, if you ever watch them, they appear to have no direction. They appear to be chaotic, out of order. And so no matter, look, no matter what you think about that shot at explanation, okay, and maybe I'm wrong, what it seems like God is doing through these food laws is saying this, you need to know that my presence is always one of life and order. That's what I'm about. And therefore, what is fitting for my presence is life and order and things being right. And if you think about it, our, like our cultural categories also tell you what, it, what is right or what is wrong or how you get in or how you're out. Right? If you go to the uh, indoor practice facility on campus in that awesome cafeteria, everything around you, what is, it, what, is it, what is it showing you and asking you to feel and see and taste? It's this, that being strong and fast and athletic means you're fit to be here. But if you're not that, you feel out of place, right? If uh, the bar scene on the square, what is it telling you? That being socially upped, being fun, being able to connect with everyone, you're in, you're fit to be here. But if you're, if you're socially awkward, if you can't keep up with people, you will feel out of place. You will feel inappropriate. Everything's screaming that this, this, this place's presence expects something. And God in Leviticus 11 is saying, what does not fit with my presence is disorder, chaos, and death. It's not what I'm about. Because God is saying He's about abundant life. He's about wholeness. He's about things being right and in order. That is the what are they are, and it is by far the longest point, okay? So, what then is their purpose? Like the rest of Leviticus, what we keep saying every week is that these rituals that God gives them are communicating truths that are, they're true, but they can seem abstract. And so these, these rituals bring things into the concrete so that you can taste, feel, and touch them. So that you could constantly live in the awareness of the presence of God. And what is the Lord revealing about Himself in these food laws? So that you can sense it and touch it and feel it. He is revealing this. I'm the God of life. I am abundant life. I'm the author and source of all life. Therefore, I'm opposed to death. I'm opposed to chaos. I'm opposed to disorder in all forms. That's what he's communicating. So that you can sense it. And I I think you know the difference between this, between an abstract truth and a concrete truth. An abstract truth doesn't mean it's not real. It's just you haven't tasted it, right? If someone tells you, that a Gibson's donut from Memphis is one of the greatest things you'll ever put in your mouth. And it is. And you've never tasted it. It can be described to you. And you can be like, okay, I got it. Sugar, sweet, I've tasted a donut. Yes. There's a sense that you know that. 
But man, when you take that blueberry cake, Gibson's Donut, and put it in your mouth for the first time, there's just a different knowledge you have. It is. Like you, you, you've, you've experienced the concrete. You talk about it in a different way. And what God was doing with these rituals in every meal, or think about it, in every preparation of food, he was, he was pointing them to the fact that God is life. And therefore, death is the enemy. And he knows we forget that. And look, we'll talk about this a lot more in the coming weeks, but I, I really felt like I needed to say this tonight. Like death and disintegration and things coming apart, it is not what God is about. It's not how he made his world to be. It's what he's opposed to. And I just say that because I, I feel like especially the last few weeks have been really heavy for a lot of people at Ole Miss. Some just on the national level, like there's, I mean, there's an awful mass school shooting that happens. And then some, like an Ole Miss student, some of you knew, has died, has taken his life, or some of you family members have gone. And the temptation, if you're like me, it's to callous your heart to those things. It's to not feel death and just keep moving. But what Leviticus is saying is it should make you weep. It should shake you. Because it's not the way things are supposed to be. God is the author of life. And death is opposed to you. And He weeps over it. And He hates it. It's not what His presence is about. And some of you need to let yourself feel that. But the other thing that he's doing in this is he is connecting order, okay, with life. So God in these food laws is saying, I want you to practice something in your, in your daily food preparation and diet so that you see and understand that God, his presence, and life and order always go together. Because God is the restorer of life. God's purpose in this world is to cleanse, renew, and bring life. Satan and sin, its purpose is to profane, disintegrate, and take away life. Alright? And if that's the case, here's where I think verse 45 starts making sense. Okay? God is saying, my presence always leads to life and order. So then in verse 45, here's what He says. Therefore... You and I be holy because I am holy. What does it mean to be holy? Most of us, when we think about holiness, we imagine some like untouchable, removed, pietistic person that like, I don't know, just isn't around people and somehow says no to everything. But if holiness is what God is and God is life, then holiness means you're like God in the sense that you have abundant life. It means you're a life-giving person. And we'll talk about this a lot in the second half of holiness, which means you cannot be holy and be isolated. Because it's about giving life to other people. And it's about living according to God's order and God's design. So follow me on this. and I, This is what I kind of word it. I think this is hard to follow, but... If God's presence is order in life, that means away from God's presence is always disorder and death. Always. 
And maybe that'll help you understand a little bit of what sin is. Okay? Because sin, it's, and here's why you can think about it. It is living against God's good order in life. It is disordering things that, out of the way that God has created them to, to function. And it always leads to dysfunction. So sin is saying, God isn't really life. He can't satisfy me. But money and friendships can. It's out of order. Sin is saying, God doesn't really understand sex. I do. So I get to say how it works. And he says that leads you away from life. Sin is saying, God doesn't understand what beauty is. I do. And culture does. This is why at the heart of sin, it's rebellion. Because it's against God's loving order that is for your life. Which means if you're a Christian, and I, man, we never assume anyone is here because we want this to be a safe place for people trying to figure it out. But if you're a Christian, Leviticus 11 is saying your life is supposed to display that you follow the God of abundant life. That His order for you is good. Because He is satisfying. And anything that smells of chaos or disorder or death, I try to move away from. And I debated like hours whether I should say this, okay? (laughs) I don't even go through all this. So I say this with all gentleness, okay? With hopefully getting you to think. Realize, Realize what that means. That rebellion is always against, against God. That means any form of underage drinking is by definition rebellion, is by definition against God's order, is by definition turning and choosing disorder. And I don't say that to shame you. I don't say that to try to create these levels. I'm just trying to get, get you a sense of the heart of what's going on that you, you and I don't believe that God is life. And that His order is good. And these food laws are supposed to communicate that left and right and again and everything that you did. So the food laws were about life and death. They're about order and disorder. Keeping the character of God before people. What about today? And here's how I'll end. Hopefully we've seen a few ways that principles, purposes, uh, and, and, and how they still apply. That God is life and His followers are to be extinct, uh, distinct because they, not extinct, uh, distinct because they display the God of life. But here's the most important feature about the food laws, all right, for, for a Christian. It's this fact, explicitly, over and over again in the New Testament. We are told we're not to follow the food laws anymore. We're not to follow them. This is what Avery Goggins read for us in Mark 7. Jesus finds himself at odds with the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day. They're watching Jesus' disciples eating without washing their hands. They're saying, you're doing stuff that's unclean. And Jesus says this, it is not what you eat. It's not what goes into you that defiles you. It's what comes out of you. It's what's in your heart. Out of our hearts comes all kinds of evil and murder and fill in the blank. And then in Acts 10, Peter He's up on a roof and he hears God three times actually by way of a vision. Three times God says, do not call common what God has declared clean. The New Testament keeps saying the food laws are not to be followed anymore. Why? 
Like, why over and over again is the New Testament saying because of Jesus, because of what He has accomplished, we don't follow them? Why would God institute something in the Old Testament all the while knowing that those practices would eventually be rolled back because of Jesus? Because what we keep saying about Leviticus is the ceremonial codes, they are the building blocks of the gospel. They are the shadows of Hebrews, as Hebrews talks about. They are the grammar that helps you understand the fullness of, of the gospel itself. They are the building blocks. But when Jesus comes, the shadows go away. And look at verse 45. God says, I'm the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God, therefore be holy. This is what God is saying. Because I have saved you, because I've saved you by my free and gracious love, because I've poured out my love for you, now you're set apart. Now you're to follow my laws of holiness. The order is everything in Christianity. Everything. God is saying that you being set apart is by His work, not yours. His grace, not your performance. And out of that salvation, you start living a distinct life. But here's what happens all throughout the Old Testament. Israel keeps flipping it. They think that they're keeping the food laws is what makes them special. They're keeping the food laws is what makes makes them clean. And God is saying, no. My salvation I've given you, my deliverance that I've given to you is what makes you clean now. You can follow me. And over and over again, what the human heart does is it takes things that we do or don't do and think that's what makes me clean. That's what makes me fit for the presence of God. And just like the Israelites, we miss it. Because what that does is it creates pride and self-righteousness and inflates you above other people. It's it's, it's in the New Testament too. It's what Galatians is about. They've taken the things that distinguish them and made them essential to being right with God. But Jesus is saying, there's their shadows. They're building blocks pointing you to something else. That the food laws were trying... You know what the food laws were trying to get you to think about? Your heart. That what really makes me unclean and unfit for the presence of God is not what I eat... It's what's inside of me. It's what's in me. It's my disordered heart. It's my defiled heart. That what really needs attention is the center of who I am, which is my heart and what I love. And I don't love God like I should. I love everything else. So here's, here's how I'll kind of wrap it up. This is how Anne Lamont finishes the, uh, the paragraph that I, I just first read for you. Remember, she's in the Safeway grocery store. In the history of Safeway, it has never once run out of apple fritters. But this time it did. And I understood instantly that God was doing for me what I could not do for myself. I did not turn to the donuts, the bear claws, the Danish, because I was actually not hungry for those. I had not been attacked by random lust for any old sugar and petroleum product. What did I do? I drove to another market. And on the way other... Over, the voice in my head said, it's not that big of a deal. Anyone would understand if you binged every so often. So I asked nicely, now, who exactly is anyone again? Anyone. I knew this was true. 
Even Jesus would. Although somehow I don't see him ripping open a package of Hostess ding-dongs for me. But thinking of Jesus, listen to this, reminding me that food would not fill the holes or quiet the fear. Only love would. And I hate this. Did you hear it? She got it. She was asking food to do what only the love of God can do in Jesus Christ. Food was her escape. Food was what kept her from thinking about the state of her heart. Food was the way that she tried to control the chaos. It's the same thing the Israelites did with their food laws. They weren't the point. They were supposed to point them and us to God and to His grace and to His love for us. And it's probably the same for most of us here. Like whether food is simply the pathway to give you energy, energy so you can stay up late, energy so you can be everywhere with everyone and only have to sleep three hours uh, you know, a night so that that feels like life, or whether food is the escape to keep you from pains of life or the shame that you've experienced, or whether food is the key to your ideal body weight or the perfect CrossFit body that you're just sure is going to like get the looks. It's saying whatever, however you're thinking about it and whatever you're using it for, you're missing life. And the never-ending daily pull is showing you that it's empty. Because it's a pathway of disorder and emptiness and death. And some of you have actually achieved those things. You've achieved the body. You've achieved the fill-in-the-blank. And you found it's twice as empty as before. And Leviticus and the whole Bible is saying, look at Jesus. There's no amount of avoiding the wrong things or eating the right things that can fill you in the way that Jesus' perfect and unwavering love will fill you. That's what God is saying. I'm holy. I care about everything. So He cares about you, especially you. And you can't keep all the laws. And it's why Jesus came, so that He could become a curse for us, so that He could make us clean. Jesus gives you His cleanness, His holiness. He gives you the love of God that no other food could satisfy, and He gives it to you freely. You just have to come with empty hands and trust Him. His burden is easy. His burden is light. You can trust Him. You can trust Him with your disorder. You can trust Him with your chaos. He's that good. Let's pray. Father, thank You for... um, Maybe it's the first time we've ever said this. Thank you for these strange food laws. If somehow they have pointed us to you and reminded us that really only feasting on you is life. Uh, Man, that would be a good night. So would you reveal to us tonight all the ways that we think that life is away from you and choose disorder and destruction? And will we hear the voice of Jesus saying, uh, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden? Uh, Because... You will give us rest because your yoke is easy and your burden is light. That would be good news. In your son's name I pray. Amen.